0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us another message about revival in a mini-series called Generation Restoration. Let's check it out. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're able to come and be a part of church with us this morning. Um, So I don't normally say this, but I want to just put it to you that if you weren't able to be a part of church last weekend, um, I hope you have a chance and you take some time this week to go back and listen to last week's message. Uh, Today is not necessarily part two of that message, but I would say it's drawn from the same questions and thoughts that um, have prompted today. And last week, the main thought and the main thing that I put to the church was that we need... You, me, anyone else you can think of, we need direction, correction, and protection, which is why we need Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And we talked about what it means to preach Jesus in this generation. And this generation that you, I, are a part of, if you are breathing today, you are a part of this generation, and our generation is more tired, exhausted, stressed, Weighed down, anxious, confused, aimless, and addicted, more so than any generation that has ever gone before us. Now, The church is supposed to be a lighthouse, but we're part of a generation that isn't worried about their boat crashing into the rocks. The church is supposed to be a hospital, but people don't realize that they're sick. The church is supposed to be the light of the world, but for many, they believe hope and peace is found in the darkness. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge, but we're watching a generation that's looking to the same world that has beaten them up for love and acceptance. The church is supposed to declare the good news of Jesus, but the world isn't listening. And people, they'll welcome some encouragement and kind words. People will welcome the church trying to help people avoid devastation and death, but no matter what, don't ever tell me I'm wrong. I'll take some advice along the way. I appreciate it in half when life gets too much, but don't ever tell me I'm wrong. My friends, this, I believe, is the tension that the modern-day church is called to navigate. How do we rescue people that don't agree that they need rescuing? How do we love people who believe we hate them? How do we have a voice around ethics and morality when the world is telling us to shut up? How do we help people undo the lies of the world when the lies are being screamed from all corners of culture? How do we proclaim that we have a life-changing message to a world that does not trust us? How do we disciple people so they're strong enough to swim against the tide of culture? How do we preach a message of forgiveness and grace to a community that doesn't think they've done anything wrong? How do we say, love your neighbor, when people hate each other if they voted differently from them? And these aren't questions that I have easy answers to. But I want to keep asking these questions until we figure out how we can fulfill our calling. And our calling is to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. And my friends, to preach the gospel, we need to talk about the role and the importance of repentance. The word repent or repentance, it has a bad reputation. Typically, what comes to mind when we hear that word is angry, bitter, judgmental people. I would even suggest that this strong perception of repentance is is so severe that it's caused churches to refrain from even uttering the word. And if churches stop preaching repentance, they can no longer preach the gospel. If we should rethink how we both say and hear this word, the word repent, it has two sides to it and it should change and it should alter how we think about this. There's the confrontational side. It's not wrong, but it's only half of the story. The word repent it does mean and it does point to the need to apologize. It does point to even being ashamed about something that has happened in the past, about being sorry for something, about remorse or regret. These are words that are all about being wrong and guilty and getting caught and being in trouble. It's not wrong, but it's only half of the story. The other half of the story is full of hope. To repent means you have the chance to change. It means you have the opportunity to turn things around. It means that your life can go through a renewal. It means that you can go through growth and development. It means that you can move on. In the face of guilt, when there's repentance, there's a chance to leave it behind. Despite unhealthy, destructive habits, there's an opportunity to change and embrace a different future. Therefore, the call to repent has the promise of hope. The call to repent has the promise of hope. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You'll notice that in this relatively short verse, you'll notice the word sorrow is repeated. The question is not whether there's sorrow. It's assumed that there will be sorrow, and we know all about sorrow. We talked a lot last week that this generation is more depressed, anxious, stressed than any generation before us. The question is, how do we respond to that sorrow? Worldly sorrow, sorrow that's missing true repentance is missing the hope. It's missing the hope of being able to move on. Yes, there's a need to apologize, there's a need of being ashamed or being sorry or remorse or regret, but there's no hope of moving forward. This only causes more sorrow recognizing our guilt or feeling ashamed and having no sense of being able to move forward, that's a devastating place to be. That's just stuck in the depression, anxiety, pressure, and stress that so many people in the world are feeling right now. But with true repentance, sorrow doesn't have to be the end of the story. But without any return to God, the sorrow that is felt and affecting people has tragic consequences. Just as Paul warns worldly sorrow, sorrow without repentance, it ends badly. But there is a godly sorrow, and I want to read you a quote from one of the books I read this week about this passage. What a contrast there is between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance, a complete change of mind and attitudes. This leads to salvation, including all the blessings of the gospel. It leaves no regret, for the past sins are not only forgiven, they are gone. Worldly sorrow, in contrast, may involve remorse regret, and guilty feelings that do not go away. It ultimately brings death. The proof of their godly sorrow was easy to see. It brought earnestness, included moral integrity, sincerity, and commitment, and fear and reverence of God. And here's a definition of the word repent that I came across a little while ago. To repent in the Greek, a literal translation is simply to change one's mind or purpose in response to something. To repent is to change one's mind or purpose in response to something. Now repentance in the Old Testament was well understood to be a returning to God, oftentimes on a national scale. But as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, the word repent in the Greek is the word metanoia. And this word metanoia wasn't exclusively used in a religious context or a spiritual or faith-based context, it was used in everyday life. If someone was gonna change their mind about what they were gonna have for dinner, they would metanoia, they would repent. If someone was going to change their mind about where they went what they did what they wore that day to repent it was not necessarily a spiritual or religious word but as the new testament authors and as jesus taught they took all that old testament theme of that we need to return to god we need to leave behind a whole bunch of stuff and we need to pursue god they hung that whole idea onto this word metanoia there is both a key moment of repentance when someone first decides to follow jesus But there is also the continued repentance, continued transformation, and those continued moments of change. A definition of the word repent that takes into consideration the New Testament context is to deeply and completely change one's heart, mind, and soul, and their entire life's priorities and purpose in response to Jesus' love and grace. My friends, the call to repent has the promise of hope. The call from Jesus to repent is packed with hope Because it's the promise that the future can look differently than the present reality. The days ahead can be full of peace and purpose, joy and hope. To repent is to bring change. First in your thinking and in your values, but in turn that inevitably changes your actions and decision making. You start with your values and your attitude and the way you make decisions. And of course your whole life is going to change. Repenting doesn't mean missing out on good, worthwhile and beneficial things. Sin leads to terrible consequences, and the track record is remarkable. All you have to do is look around in this plain to see. The suggestion that repentance is a bad thing only carries weight if someone honestly believes that staying the same is better than changing. This would be like the prodigal son staying in the pigsty because he believes it's better than going home. This would be Paul, the apostle, getting knocked off his horse and getting going back to, on the horse and going to Damascus to finish his assassination mission. This is King David kicking Nathan out of his house when he's confronted about his affair. This is Moses refusing to go back to Egypt after seeing the burning bush. This is Peter staying ashamed and going back to the fishing boats after he had denied Jesus three times. But repentance is not negative. It's a positive. It was repentance that meant the prodigal son could go home. It was repentance that meant Paul would turn from being a would be murderer into one of the most influential leaders in world history, someone that would write almost a quarter of the New Testament, helping countless people grow in their faith. It was repentance that meant that David would continue ruling God's people and taking his place as an ancestor of the Messiah. It was repentance that meant Moses would return to Egypt and see God move in powerful and unique ways as an entire nation was delivered from slavery. It was repentance. That meant Peter would take his place as a key leader in the early church. On the day of Pentecost, he would preach and 3,000 people would be saved. And what did Peter preach about when he preached and 3,000 people got saved? He preached about the need for repentance, a topic he knew something about. Repentance is not a negative. It is filled with hope and the promise of a different future than we're living in today. The world has it backwards. Repentance is not a prison cell. Godly living is not restrictive and confined and miserable. It's the way to life both here on earth and into eternity. Repentance is not a prison cell. It's an escape route. It's escaping the pain and devastation that sin eventually brings and returning to God. The world is selling us a backwards reality where sin is the escape route and sin is the path to freedom, joy, and peace, while repentance is the prison cell. Apparently, to repent and turn to God is said to be constrictive and miserable and giving up wonderful things. To believe this, we have to deny reality. We would have to pretend that sin is actually working, that those people jumping headfirst into the promises of the world are actually the happiest, that the more hedonistic the world has become, the better things have gotten. It is evident for anyone honest enough to look objectively. Sin is the unforgiving prison cell, and repentance is the undeserved escape route. In the book of Joel, that is why the Lord says, "'Turn to me now while there is time.'" Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. And this call from Joel is don't do the external stuff. Don't tear your clothing but let it affect your hearts. Don't tear your clothing, which is a typical outward expression of repentance, but instead tear your heart. It's easier to try and fix and adjust behavior, but true change is a change in the heart. I've known a couple of preachers who've um, said publicly that God decided to shortcut their progress. I've heard two prominent preachers, people who've gathered quite a following and gained a level of notoriety They described how God had taken a shortcut or expedited their discipleship. One guy said that he had a dream or a vision where God told him he was going to do the maturing and character building that should take 10 years, and God was going to do it in an instant. Sure enough, it wasn't long after that that it became public. He'd begun an affair, and the fallout was ugly and tragic. The proclamation that God was shortcutting the deep work he needed to do in this guy's heart should have set off alarm bells. In light of this scripture from Joel, he was tearing his clothes and telling everyone it was the same as tearing his heart. God's call to repent is a deep work in our hearts and in our minds, and he is committed to working through the mess with us so we can truly take the escape route and live a new life of freedom and peace in Jesus' name. The scripture reminds us that the God who is calling for a deep repentance is also merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. By returning to God in repentance, we reaffirm not only his status and sovereignty, but also his character. We can even see somewhat of a progression in aspects of his character as we consider the role of repentance. The first thing to recognize and remember is that God is fair and just. God is fair and just. His judgments are never wrong, and his anger is never misplaced. It's important we get this. God is not unfair or ruthless in his justice, but he is fair. Now, parents, have you ever had a kid who's tried to justify a bad decision? Must just be me and you, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> but after you get all the background story about, you know, what he was doing, what she was doing, and what was happening, and, you know, but your dad, you don't understand this and that and the other. You just sort of cut through all of it, and you just say, yeah, but you did that thing you're in trouble for, and you just kind of get that look on the face of like... Yeah, I'm out of excuses now. We should get to that place. God, in His judgment and His justice, He is never wrong. Some of us want to take issue with this. We want to argue against Him, but there's no argument to be had. He is perfect. He is honest. He is holy. If He declares someone guilty, He can only be correct. This, by itself, should fill us with dread and despair. But God being fair and just are not the only aspects of His character. The second thing, God is merciful. God is merciful. To be merciful is to withhold punishment. It would be fair and just to enact a punishment, but in his mercy, he refrains. This is being caught, found guilty, and then being set free. This is escaping the consequences we deserve. Mercy is not fair. Fair is punishment and anger, but this is mercy. There are so many verses we could talk about with God being merciful, but this is one of my favorites from Psalm 103. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. And even beyond merciful, the third thing, God is kind. He forgives. And gives second chances not only is he completely fair and just in his judgments not only does he withhold the punishment that is completely fair and warranted he also forgives and gives second chances to give someone a second chance after they've blown it is dramatic demonstration of kindness this is like we stole something if we've stolen something valuable we got caught and then we deserve a harsh punishment because we've been found guilty of being a thief and we get set free because of mercy And not only have we been set free, even though we stole something valuable, even though we were found guilty, we were set free. And not only that, we were also told, you do not have to make restitution. You do not have to repay what you have stolen. You have been given a clean slate to start over, a second chance and total forgiveness because of God's kindness. But there's still another step in this progression. God is full of grace. God is full of grace. To be fair and just in judgment, and then to be merciful and withhold punishment, and bear the cost and forgiveness, giving a second chance there is still more, there's true grace. Grace means that while we're living in the second chance we don't deserve, he is committed to giving us all we need to flourish in our new life. This is the thief, stolen something valuable, given a sentence, given a judgment that is correct, but was set free then was told they don't have to pay restitution. And because of grace, we're now going to give the thief a job and housing and everything they need to rebuild their lives. God's grace is what restores us to the family. John 1.12, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. From undeniably guilty and condemned to finding out that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It's no wonder that the song is amazing grace and not average grace. And Paul reminds the church in Corinth that we preach Christ crucified. I was in by this verse earlier this week, and I wondered why didn't Paul say we preach Christ resurrected? Paul writes here, we preach Christ crucified, but why didn't he say we preach Christ resurrected? I think it would have made his point, and it's also equally true, but I believe it's because we need reminding of the significance and the weight of what we're talking about. Jesus was crucified, and that's an essential part of our message. The justice and correct judgment of God was on full display on the cross as God's Son took on the sin of the world and paid the price that you and I could never pay. Something that I shared with the church, I think it was uh, not this past Easter, but the Easter before, is that your passion for the empty tomb cannot exceed your gratitude for the cross. Your passion for the empty tomb cannot exceed your gratitude for the cross. We should be passionate and overjoyed at the empty tomb, but there's a cross. If we forget that God's judgments are 100% correct, and that I have no defense and no claim of innocence, if we forget this, our gratitude for the cross takes a hit. And if our gratitude for the cross takes a hit, we're not going to be as passionate about the empty tomb as we should be. The empty tomb is worth rejoicing and celebrating and being filled with joy and passion for, but it came at a cost. And the cost was that the judgment of God said, there is something wrong. There is is, sin cannot stand. A price needs to be paid. Justice was seen on the cross. Grace was felt at the empty tomb. Aspects of God's character. God is fair and just, merciful, kind, and full of grace. And so much of what I've been thinking and praying about over the last few weeks has been consumed with a love and a concern for our generation. We've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about the brokenness and hurt that this generation carries, and I wanted to learn a bit more, so I asked um, Sam and Ryan, two of the high school students um, in the youth ministry, where is he? Hey, what are you doing, man? You all hiding in shame? Everyone say, hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. He loves attention. I don't know why you're suddenly being all shy. This is weird. But I put together a very simple survey, and asked these guys if they would help me out and um, sort of see if we could get as many people, um, many people between the age of 12 and 25 in central New York to fill this out. And we had 77 people respond. This is 100% anonymous, so I have no idea who said what. And there are a few surprises and a few helpful insights. The first thing I'll share with you is, first question was, are the things you care about most the same thing your parents care about? 55% said yes. I was surprised at that, I thought it would be lower than that. So apparently over half of the people between 12 and 25 in central New York believe their values and their parents values line up. I did wonder if parents would say the same thing. But it does mean that in this anonymous survey that 45 percent, which is not a small number, they said that no, their values and their parents values don't line up. That's a lot of disagreement in a lot of homes. Second question is, do you typically feel misunderstood? 42% said yes. That's a lot of students. That's a lot of young people. That's a lot of college kids that say they typically, on a day-to-day basis, they feel misunderstood. Next one, would you describe yourself as stressed, anxious, or depressed? 52%, 52% said yes. But there's something important that came from the next two questions. Do you feel there's more to life than you're experiencing right now? 82% said yes. Oh, sorry, 88% said yes. In 10 years time, one person claps, you all have to. And the next question, in 10 years time, do you think your life will be better than it is right now? And 85% said yes. Now, I want to, you know, this really meant a lot to me because from these two questions, now keep in mind, this is anonymous. I have no idea who put what. From this honest response from Gen Z, the people that live in central New York, the kids that go to our high schools, the kids that are in our colleges, they're expecting that there's more to life than what they're experiencing right now. In 10 years' time, there's a belief that life is going to get better. In short, ladies and gentlemen, there is a sense of hope among our young people. From over 80% of the people we got a response for, there are signs of optimism of all the adjectives we could use to describe this generation of young people. After reading these responses this week, I don't know if hopeless is an adjective we could honestly use. My friends, hope is a powerful thing. Hope is not defined by today. Hope is not limited by the present, but a belief that the future will be better than it is right now. And we are the church. We have the ultimate message of hope. We have the message of Jesus. If this is a generation that has an undercurrent of hope, we have something we can talk about with this generation. The relationship between repentance and hope opens up a much needed conversation with this generation of Gen Z. Next question, question six. Would you ever consider turning to church or the Bible to try and find answers to your life's most important questions? 65% yes. If a friend invited you to church, would you go with them? 60% yes. 26% said maybe. I'll take a maybe. I looked at these responses and I became filled with joy because despite how it may seem, this is a generation that is not closed to the things of God. There is still an openness to hear the gospel. There is some kind of belief somewhere that maybe, just maybe, the message of Jesus might be the greatest news the world will ever hear. Any church that treats this generation as a lost cause is making an enormous mistake. I have a renewed passion and certainty that God is going to move in unprecedented ways in this generation. Get ready. And what are we getting ready for? I don't know, but I want to find out. When God moves, I don't want to be caught putting my socks on. I want to be ready to go. And one thing I remain absolutely resolute about is this generation is going to crave the presence of God, true spiritual encounters, not just hot air. Paul talks about this and his letter to the Corinthians. For the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It's not just some British guy yakking on and on every Sunday. It is living by God's power. To the Thessalonians he wrote, For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words. It was not just concepts. It wasn't theory. It wasn't well put together arguments. It wasn't a philosophy. But it was also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. Our promise as the church is that the gospel has the power to change lives. Not only some intellectual ideas or an ancient philosophy or a proven moral code, but real power and substance. And this cannot be theory only. A few of the moments that came to mind as I was thinking about this idea of the message of Jesus, the gospel has power behind it. One of the ones that came to me is a story that will stick with me forever. As I was a youth pastor. I was relatively new at the time. And I'd written a message I was gonna share with the high school students, and I just knew that we needed to end the message with a time of worship. And I'm not musical at all. Megan was the worship pastor at the church, but um, we couldn't get anyone to watch the kids, and so she had to say no because she had to stay home with the kids. There was some other members of the worship team. I was like, hey, can you come and lead worship? I really feel we need this, and no one could make it. And so I got to church, and I was working um, kind of at the sound booth, kind of the equivalent of back there. Everyone waved to Bruce. So I was kind of there sort of setting up and doing my thing. And as I'm kind of there, I'm all sort of frustrated and, you know, probably being pretty childish about it all. And as I was doing this, two of the youth students who didn't know I was there and come to think of it, I have no idea how they got in the church building, but they crept up on stage and they stood at the piano, no idea that I was here. And they they got behind the piano and with one hand, one of the girls started plonking some keys. uh, 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 uh. And then one of them starts singing, break every chain, break it. Everyone know that old song? Break every chain. And I was like, this is better than nothing. So I said, hey, after I'm done speaking tonight, can you stick around and lead everyone in that song? And they were like, I guess. So I got done preaching and they get up and I'm not kidding, with one hand, plonk, 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 plonk. plonk. We started worshiping. The presence of God fell in that tiny church in the middle of nowhere in Montana. An hour and a half later, we were still there. Plonk, 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 plonk. And I was trying to be res- the responsible grown-up in the room. And I would get up and I would say, if you need to go, if mom is waiting for you in, like, in the parking lot, if you've got curfew, if you've got homework and you need to go, okay, like please, you're, you're good to go. Love you, we'll see you next time. They wouldn't leave. Not because of my preaching. Not because of my awesome jokes, and they are awesome. (laughs) Not because of whatever ridiculous game I came up with that week. The presence of God fell in that room. It fell. And an hour and a half later, a bunch of teenagers who are awesome, i love these kids, they just encountered the presence of God and they did not want to leave. That is the kind of power that comes to my mind when I read these verses from Paul. Another time, I was thinking about this was uh, not in Montana, but in New Jersey. We would um, have youth, and we would typically run our services, not like how we're doing it now. We would have, um, you know, preaching first, followed by a time of worship, and the time of worship, there was always a big expectation that there was going to be a big call to respond. There was going to be a call to come and receive prayer, and I just, my head is filled with altars being packed with teenagers. And I've seen it, and I believe we can see it again. I think about um, Pastor Annie. She doesn't know I'm going to tell a story about her. But this past week, she took a bunch of students to go and see the Jesus Revolution movie. And after the movie was over, they didn't just go home. They pent down the front of the movie theater and started having a prayer circle in the middle of a movie theater, and great things came out of it. I'm not sure why Pastor Annie was pouring bottles of water over students' head, but she knows, and that's all that matters, I guess. Words of knowledge were coming, prophecy was coming, kids were declaring God's truth over people, kids were repenting of things and abandoning things, a new passion was resuming and then on the buses home the conversation didn't stop and a resurgence started to come out of these students of there is a God in heaven that loves me and we got to pursue Him with everything. (laughs) This doesn't happen by theory only. This doesn't happen because of lofty ideas, well-put-together speeches. This doesn't come by hot air and talk. This comes by the power of God. There is definitely a hunger. There is a hope for something more, a craving for something real. For a generation that's tired, worn out, beaten up by life, pressured, confused. To this generation, Jesus says the same thing he has said to all generations. Come to me. Deep down, in moment of honesty, everybody wants this. And as a follower of Jesus, I want everybody to find it. I hope this is what people find when they come to our church. I hope people looking for this will come to our church. As Megan said a few weeks ago, the world isn't going to run to the church because we look like the world, but rather because we're different. This is a responsibility that the church should take seriously in a wrapping, changing culture. In the last 10 years, people have found themselves debating things they never thought they would be debating. The hottest topics of conversation today weren't on anyone's mind 10 or 15 years ago. Regardless of political affiliation, which state we live in, our economic status or our faith background, each and every American has seen the world and the values of the world change. In decades past, there were always social concerns or controversial topics or points of debate. But today, we're running full steam ahead to unknown horizons. We're running as far away from God as possible, and we're running as quickly as our legs will carry us. And because we love people, and we care about their well-being, can we please be honest and recognize that on a massive scale, it is not working. It is not helping. People are not happier. People are not healthier. People do not have a stronger sense of peace or joy. No one is disputing that this generation is more confused, depressed, anxious, Isolated than any generation before us. That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Now, it would be foolish to say that all the societal concerns and questions that have easy answers and easy solutions, I know that's foolish, but it starts with admitting what's obvious. It's not helping, and in fact, it's harming a generation. The world isn't bringing the happiness and contentment that it's been promising. Once we start to acknowledge that we can see people coming to God and finding true peace and freedom, not the phony version that culture is selling. The people who are weary and worn out from carrying heavy burdens and heavy weights really can find rest in Jesus. My hope is that everyone finds out that this isn't just a theory, but they experience the love of God. That God is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. This is absolutely life-changing. It was while living in Montana that I first wrote down as part of a message I was giving at a youth conference and it was like point C of sub-point two, I wrote down something that has come to be, a, I would say, a guiding thought process for my life, that if you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, the only logical response is to follow Him with everything. I've got that printed on a canvas in my office. If you've been around church for longer than six minutes, you've heard me say it before. If you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. If, this is conditional, if, if you believe, not someone else, not the person that invited you to church today, not your parents that drag you here every Sunday, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, not a morphed subjective version of who I may want Jesus to be, but if we believe that he is who he says he is, the son of God, the savior of the world, The only way to reconcile our broken relationship with Father. The fulfillment of all God's promises. The one who went to the cross for you and for me. If you believe that, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. Following him half-heartedly does not make sense. Following him kinda sorta sometimes, now and again, once in a while, does not make sense. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the only logical response is to follow him with everything. Everything is second place to following Jesus. Nothing is off the table. Nothing is more important than your commitment to follow him. And this challenge, it starts with the church. There is a call for the church to repent, for believers to repent. Where have we let Jesus take a secondary place? Where have we listened to someone else's voice above his? What thinking that contradicts Jesus have we bought into? What habits have we picked up that are tripping us up What choices are we making that don't take our Lord into consideration? The call to repentance starts with believers. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Revivals, they begin with believers, and they begin with repentance. And how do we repent? Well, this is something that's happening on the inside. But that doesn't undo the importance of what's happening on the outside as a consequence. Repentance is in the heart, mind, and soul. But often, even typically, telling someone what has brought you to repentance is powerful. Reaching out, getting help is important. Sharing with someone who cares and loves you what you're leaving behind, what you're turning from is a powerful moment. It adds accountability. It inspires others to share their story as well. And what happens if the church repents? I believe we see the hope within repentance come to fruition. The hope starts to become realized. Our light shines brighter. We know true peace and fulfillment. Our eyes and hearts are locked on Him and we find a fresh passion steering our lives. When we let go of all the things that plague our conscience and distort our relationships, we'll notice the change immediately. Consider this verse from Hebrews. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. If we let go of these things, if we start letting go of those weights, the world will notice. If the church becomes more passionate, more purposeful, if the message of Jesus is making a true difference in your life, people will notice. It's a lot easier to point at the world or culture or society and point out what is happening that is contrary to the Bible or is sinful, but it's a lot harder to examine ourselves. I also believe it's more important. The world needs God's help, but so do we. Sometimes you need surgery, and other times you need to amputate. Both are to save a life. Some are more obvious than others. Some are easier to diagnose than others. Some have different consequences than others. How you would have to rearrange your life after amputation compared to how you would have to rearrange your life after surgery are obviously different. The aftercare from surgery or amputation is different. The pain is different. People's reaction to amputation or surgery are different, but both are to save a life. What you or I may need to repent from may be obvious, may be easy to see, may be known by everybody, or it could be quiet and something secretive. It could be something that is obviously a risk to my life or it could be quietly eating away at me. It could be something that most people think is a wonderful part of my personality, but I know it's destroying my soul. It might be a habit, it might be an attitude. It might be something that society says is normal and to be expected, or it might be something shocking to everyone. It may be something that you used to be proud of or it may be something you've always been ashamed of. It might be something that gets worked through slowly, one day at a time, or it might be something that needs swift, decisive action, but it's all to save a life. Repent in the New Testament context is to deeply and completely change one's heart, mind, and soul, and their entire life's priorities and purpose in response to Jesus' love and grace. God is fair and just, He's merciful, kind, God is full of grace. And please remember that this isn't a message of hot air or just a theory, but there is power in this. The power to change lives, the power to change eternities, the power to transform hearts and minds, the power to leave sin and death behind, the power to embrace godliness and the life Jesus promises. The call to repent has the promise of hope. A few questions. Hopefully, get a chance to write these down, spend some time thinking about this this week. But the first thing is, do you see the call to repent as having the promise of hope? Do you see the call to repent as having that promise of hope? Do you see the repentance is being loaded with anger and judgment and bitterness, or do you see that there's hope in this call to repent? That it's not a prison cell, but rather an escape route. And the second question, what's one thing you should think about differently repentance starts in the heart and the mind and what's one thing you should think about differently not one of us can claim we've made it not one of us can say that we're a finished product so the challenge to each and every one of us is what's one thing I don't want to let everyone know and remind everyone that this room is filled with stories of repentance This room is filled with people that have found out that the other side of repentance is a story of hope being realized. There is a promise in turning to God. There is a promise in letting go of whatever the past was about and moving forward in all that God has for you. My friends, we need to share those stories. We need to embrace that repentance is not something terrible, awful, and evil that we should feel bad about. The repentance is filled with hope and it means that we are stepping into the promises of what God has for us. I want to read to you a wonderful set of scriptures Psalm 103 starting verse 8 The Lord is compassionate and merciful slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever He does not punish us for all our sins He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers we bloom and die. The wind blows and we are gone as though we had never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go back into a time of worship. Lord, take something from today. Lord, and please Teach our hearts, teach our minds that are called to repentance is not loaded with guilt and shame and fear and bitterness and anger and judgment. But Lord, it is a call to step into your promises. It is a call to hope, a belief that the future can look differently than reality looks right now. Lord, I pray that each and every person here today, that they would leave here with a confidence that that is indeed the truth, that is your heart towards them, that there is a future for them. I pray that for every single person here. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, everybody. Let's spend some time worshiping together.